0: We're on the record. I'm Sheila Kass. Good morning. For just over half his 17 years in the House of Representatives, Democratic Congressman John Sarbanes has been in the minority. Hard to get proposals to the floor, let alone enacted. Plus, for more than a decade, this outspoken advocate for voting rights represented a district whose boundaries were seen as some of the most gerrymandered in the country. The 3rd District was redrawn last year to embrace much more compact areas of Howard, Anne Arundel, and Carroll counties. And more than half the people who live in it are new to Sarbanes. Are either of these the factor that led the 61-year-old Democrat to announce that he won't seek re-election to a 10th term in the House? Let's ask him. Congressman Sarbanes joins us by Zoom. Welcome back to On the Record.
1: Thanks very much, Sheila. It's good to be with you.
0: And so depressing to function in the minority, frustrating to represent so many new voters, disheartening to watch the Republican majority flail about in electing a speaker? Why are you quitting?
1: All those things you mentioned are challenges, but they go with the job and, you know, you learn to manage the day-to-day dynamics in Washington. But I have to say the reasons for me deciding to move on are not coming from any kind of negative place. It's all it's all positively oriented. and And very simply it's that I feel like I've still got another career chapter in me and I'd like to go explore what that is. I know I want it to be kind of service related and it's exciting to think about what that next chapter could look like. So it was very much, I guess I'd say a pull factor at work, uh, being energized about the prospect of some new things where I can make a difference. And it wasn't about sort of the, the challenges and the dynamics to serve in politics right now, which, you know, get a lot of attention and and can produce some tension in the job but it's it's all it's all for good and positive reasons that I've decided to to explore this next chapter,
0: so tell me more about what it looks like when you daydream about the next chapter.
1: Sure. So I've always felt that 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 service is something anybody can pursue in little ways, in big ways. I had a chance before I came to Congress to see what that was like working with nonprofit organizations, doing a lot of pro bono work when I was an attorney. I got to work in the education space with the State Department of Education and was able to, to I guess, collaborate with amazing people who are unsung heroes a lot of the time and make a, make a real impact and difference in a positive way on the community and it was very rewarding and gratifying to be connected to that. And while I don't have it sort of perfectly defined yet in my mind, what will come next? I know I want to do something where I can have those interactions and I can be inspired by people who who serve in that fashion every single day. And I'm looking forward to getting a clearer picture of that as as things move along. I've got Fourteen months left to serve out this uh, term in Congress and finish out my my tenure there, and so I'll have the opportunity to to figure out what comes next. But definitely something that keeps me connected to to service and certainly working in the democracy space in one capacity or another is something I think I'll do for the rest of my life, to be honest, given the, the strong commitment I've made to that over the last few years.
0: So you will, as you said, be in office until January 2025. What will be your top focus?
1: I'll continue to focus on health care issues, clean energy issues, certainly climate change, because that's right in the wheelhouse of my committee, the Energy and Commerce Committee, and we'll continue to have very important Hearings there and an oversight role that has to be uh, brought to bear. So I expect to continue my work there. But certainly in the democracy arena, uh, we continue to push forward these two very important pieces of legislation the Freedom to Vote Act, which was designated as H.R. 1 over two Congresses and is now H.R. 11 in the House because that's the, the best post position you can give it when you're in the minority and the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, both of those are hugely consequential to fixing and strengthening our democracy in what is a very precarious and fragile time. And my efforts there are frankly going to only intensify over the next 14 months because I want to make sure that the team that we've built in Washington and on Capitol Hill that's pushing that democracy reform effort forward is as strong as it can be, that we're ready for that moment of getting a trifecta in 2025 where Democrats can hold the gavels in both uh, uh, chambers of Congress and we have a Democratic president. And then we make another run at this very important legislation. So I'm I'm certainly going to continue to bring a lot of focus and attention there. I'm gratified and delighted that uh, that Catherine Clark from Massachusetts, who's our our whip in the leadership team and will be majority leader in in a Congress where where the Democrats hold the gavel in the House, that she's agreed to take on. The uh, effort to shepherd passage of of what's been HR one, the Freedom to Vote Act, that sends a very powerful message that the momentum remains strong around this legislation, and I continue to be uh, interested in that, and and intend to be a member of that team wherever I may be for as long as it as it may take.
0: That's Democratic Congressman John Sarbanes, who announced late last month he's not running for re-election to the 3rd District seat he has held since 2007. This is On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about how he'll focus his last year in Congress. You and Maryland Senator Chris Van Hollen are pushing for a Chesapeake National Recreational Area. Why is that important, and what would visitors see that's different?
1: I'm glad you mentioned that Sheila and that's among the initiatives when I speak of commitment to the environment that's very close to me obviously the Chesapeake Bay is is this treasure this national treasure we have that that Marylanders in particular have have exercised stewardship over for many many years and we're we're dedicated to to improving the health of the Chesapeake Bay and at the same time, we're dedicated to making sure that, that there's access to the bay from the public, that there's an understanding of the the cultural heritage around the Chesapeake, Chesapeake Bay, all the benefits that it brings to those who reside in Maryland and, and the 16 million people that reside in the Chesapeake Bay watershed. That's six states and the District of Columbia that are encompassed by that So what Senator Van Hollen and I wanna do is um, create a national recreation area for the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, This is something that's been done around the country, these national recreation areas. And what they do is they sort of connect different sites together uh, within the National Park Service so that there's a kind of overarching theme. In this case, it is the bay, its history, its culture, its importance as a natural habitat and so forth, and elevate that profile. And I think given the precedent for the Park Service managing these kinds of recreation areas across the country in a very responsible way, that it will just add another dimension to what it means for us to protect and and preserve and uplift the Chesapeake Bay. So we're very we're very excited about this effort. We've introduced legislation and now we're going to work as hard as we can in this Congress to see if we can get it over the finish line. It does have bipartisan support in Congress, which I'm very proud of. And so we'll we'll build on that and hopefully get it done uh, and deliver this very important win for the Chesapeake Bay.
0: You've also been pushing for school-based mental health services. Is there a bipartisan consensus on that?
1: There's very strong bipartisan support for enhancing mental health services across the country in many different respects. And you see that alongside this also bipartisan commitment to addressing the opioid addiction crisis um, and other challenges that we face. So it's something that I've worked with my colleagues on. I've had a particular focus on strengthening uh, school-based health centers, because you know you have this captive audience of, of young people and making sure they have both physical and mental health services available to them, counseling services that they can access right there in their schools. It means a tremendous amount to them uh, to their uh, ability to uh, to take full advantage of their educational opportunity, uh, it certainly means a lot to their families. And so broadening that opportunity out across the country in terms of those school-based health services is something I've been very focused on. With now this added attention to the mental health side of the equation, uh, it certainly has... Um, a relationship to uh, addressing school violence and other things that we see. And if we can continue to boost that support for young people in their schools, uh, I think it, it, it yields benefits all around. So that's absolutely been a priority of mine over the last few years, and will continue to be uh, through the rest of this Congress.
0: Thanks for talking to us.
1: Thank you very much, Sheila. I appreciate it. All the best.
0: Congressman John Sarbanes has represented Maryland's 3rd District since 2007 and has announced he will not seek a 10th term next year. I'm Sheila Cass. Stay with us. back to On the Record. I'm Sheila Cast. New plans for Harbor Place, an FBI raid on one of Baltimore's safe street sites, plus redrawing the city's political boundaries. Joining me to unpack some recent headlines is Adam Willis, city government reporter with our news partner, The Baltimore Banner. Welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks so much for having me. MCB Real Estate unveiled its design for Baltimore's downtown waterfront last week. The green-roofed pavilions in Baltimore's Inner Harbor would be torn down to make way for a new vision, one that includes a steeply sloped building called The Sale. Describe the development firm's plan.
2: So, like you said, the um, the, the development firm released these these renderings earlier this week that um, kind of finally show this much anticipated uh, project that they're that they're trying to do, Um, extremely expensive, you know, $500 million, $500 plus million project um, that they've got in store here, the the kind of key pieces that they announced um, on Monday are these sort of four buildings basically that are going to be central to the project. If you visualize the Inner Harbor, you've got uh, Light Street and Pratt Street there. And what they have sort of pitched um, or said that they they want to do is build this uh, this building that you mentioned called the Sail, this um, uh, kind of crazy looking um, architectural like sort of sweeping structure with uh, rooftop parks along Pratt Street, um, along with commercial space there and commercial space in a building next door to it. Um, and then somewhat uh, controversially, I would say along White Street, they're also proposing. These two uh, uh, high-rise apartment towers that that would be built up right there along Light Light Street along the along the Inner okay. Harbor. Those were kind of the the big developments that were that were just announced this week.
0: And when you say controversially, it's the height of those residential towers that's controversial.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think people you know are are hashing all of this out um, online and in, in, in public right now, and everyone uh, had been excited to see what the renderings would look like and has had their sort of initial reactions to it. But but yes, I think like, one of the things that that I've been hearing is um, just this question of kind of access to uh, the water and access to the viewshed there. Um, and seen some pushback basically on this, this sort of high rise development along the harbor. And, and certainly some people have questioned whether that's, um, that's the best use of that space and whether it, it really opens it up in the way that people um, have said that they want to see.
0: This plan covers I don't know how many acres. It would require some zoning changes, right?
2: That's right. There's kind of a lot <laughs> actually in store here that needs to happen um, between today and and when MCB um, actually gets under underway with the work here. Um, I was talking with uh, one of our one of my colleagues, um, a reporter Hallie Miller, who has done um, quite a bit of reporting on the Harbor Place plans, um, and you know she she was pointing out that there's these steps around zoning. Um, the city council has proposed a charter amendment, which would go to voters, um, a citywide, um, you know, ballot initiative, um, for rezoning this area for multifamily, uh, residential development. Um, there's the whole permitting process that has to happen. Uh, city officials by and large are, are, um, I shouldn't even say by and large, are I think overwhelmingly sort of on board with, um, and supportive of what, uh, MCB is is looking to do here, but even even that said, there's there's quite a few hurdles to go through um, to kind of get underway, and um, we're we're looking at probably at, at least a couple of years before we sort of see like shovels in the ground, kind of work getting done on the on the Inner Harbor area.
0: Briefly, take a look back for us. The pavilions in the Inner Harbor now are mostly vacant today. How did we get here?
2: Sure. So it's it's uh, a long kind of history that we've seen in this area basically over the last 40 years um the the story of of Harbor Place but um these pavilions when they were opened back in in 1980 were kind of credited with totally sort of revitalizing the inner harbor and, and downtown Baltimore they became this sort of attraction for for tons of people who who flocked to to downtown Baltimore over the years that reputation has has changed sort of substantially. A lot of people sort of point to more of a, a dated feel to to the downtown area or the Inner Harbor area as a result of these pavilions, that they have become these sort of uh, chain restaurant uh, hubs uh, that are are much more lightly used by the public. So, the the story of these pavilions is kind of a, a the the arc, I guess, of of the Inner Harbor more generally. And uh, David Bramble um, with MCB Realty has basically pitched tearing the pavilions down. And taking a whole new sort of architectural approach to the area in hopes that that, that would revitalize the downtown area.
0: As Baltimore Banner reporter Adam Willis on the record and WIPR, I'm Sheila Cast. We're talking about some of his recent reporting on city government. Let's turn to um, the councilmanic districts. As a result of the 2020 mm-hmm. census, the city must redraw the boundaries of its 14 council districts. Both the city council and mayor have put forth plans. What are the key differences between these two maps? I think it's fair to say
2: that by and large in their sort of core aspects they're very similar plans and that's partly because or largely because there are some legal requirements that the city has to adhere to in the redistricting process um and there are census designations in terms of the the population of the city and dividing council districts into roughly even populations that are just sort of non-negotiable um so the the sort of uh the, the big change that um i've pointed out in in all of my stories on on this is that uh councilman cohen's first district and councilman costello's 11th district are basically, no matter what, going to have to see their geographic area decreased because those are areas that have sort of seen a, a big influx of residents over the last decade, even as Baltimore's population, as we know, has continued to, to decline. The, the difference is, though, you know, Mayor Scott proposed his plan um, uh, I think about a month and a half ago now. and. Immediately, community groups kind of responded and a lot of them raised concerns about seeing their neighborhoods divided between multiple council members and how that would make it difficult to have sort of neighborhood unity and, and advocate for the issues that they care about. Uh, council President Mosby took in a lot of that input over several community community town halls. Um, and the version of the map that the city council passed that Council President Mosby introduced, is essentially sort of a uh, changes or tweaks on the mayor's proposal to accommodate a lot of those concerns that came out of neighborhood groups.
0: Well, how will the differences between the city council and the mayoral maps be resolved, and on what kind of timeline?
2: All of that is is well underway now. The the city has to to finish this whole process on what I think is a, a pretty rapid timeline. So from the date that the mayor introduced his plan. The city has 60 days to get the entire thing uh, wrapped up, signed um, by the mayor, and uh, and and put into place, basically. And so that that means that the city council was under pretty rush timeline to take in community input and kind of devise their own their own counter proposal, which they ended up doing.
0: That this is, gets that deadline won- is November 17th, right?
2: That's right. Yes. So they have until November 17th. However if the mayor were to veto the council's plan council president mosby has really urged the mayor to do that as soon as possible because th- this this gets very wonky but basically the the mayor could just let the timeline expire and let the clock run out and have his own plan go into effect without giving the council an opportunity to to override his veto and the mayor, or excuse me, council president, has really urged him to act sooner than that in order to allow the council sort of a fair shake if if they um, ended up seeing their plan vetoed.
0: Whatever particulars uh, are there implications for next year's elections?
2: Certainly. Um, so that that's kind of the the reason for the uh, for the rush here for the for the big push all of the uh members on the 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 15 member city council are up for re-election next year the city council president is elected uh city but all of the others will be elected out of their own out of their own districts so to members on the city council the the borders that they're campaigning within um, and also that just that they're going to be representing going forward have uh, have pretty big stakes for how they how they think about their um, their strategy on the one hand, their political strategy, but also just their constituency going forward.
0: Let's quickly turn to another story you've covered two weeks ago. The FBI raided the Bel Air Edison location of the Baltimore anti-violence group Safe Streets. What What has been the fallout? We're
2: still trying to kind of get more information on what exactly happened here and why. I, I think it's fair to say we have pretty limited information to kind of draw conclusions based on what what happened here. But the FBI did raid the Safe Street site in Air, Edison. Um, they also visited uh, the homes of two Safe Streets employees from what we've been told. Um, this was part of a broader raid that happened or broader sort of series of raids that happened the same day, um, in other parts of the city from what the FBI has said, they hit 15 different, uh, locations in that day, including these, these safe streets or safe streets affiliated sites. The fallout is that, uh, there are three safe street staffers from that location who are currently on leave life bridge health, which manages the site has, has told us, um, one of them actually has been arrested and charged. And LifeBridge and and the city have all said that if someone were to be found guilty of wrongdoing, then um, they you know they should be uh, punished accordingly, and, and 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 likely wouldn't continue working that site.
0: As you alluded to, the 10 sites uh, are now under the supervision of Lifebridge Health and Catholic Charities of Baltimore. That's after an internal review last year highlighted lack of oversight across Safe Streets locations. You spoke with Hopkins professor Daniel Webster, who studies gun violence. What, What did he have to say about the raid?
2: I thought uh, Professor Webster made some some interesting points here. You know, there's been a lot of um, criticism of safe streets or skepticism of safe streets, particularly from the city council level um from some members on the city council. Uh, and Professor Webster, you know, i don't I don't think he wanted to uh, be dismissive of that at all. What he told me is that this should be a wake up call for accountability measures and for for oversight of of the program. Um, but on the other hand, he kind of pushed back on folks jumping to conclusions about what happened before there's more information. And then separately for for people sort of calling for more sweeping changes just based on sort of what what looks like it may have been a more isolated case. So he, you know, made the point that the Baltimore Police Department has had um lots of problems. We've looked at the gun trace task force uh, just in recent years. For for wrongdoing and criminal behavior among uh, among its ranks, um, and folks don't necessarily call for the uh, for doing away with the police department entirely in response to to those issues. And he he pushed back on whether an institution like like Safe Street should should stop getting public support because of wrongdoing or alleged wrongdoing by a handful of members of the program.
0: Adam, thanks thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Thank you so much for having me. Adam Willis covers city government for our news partner, The Baltimore Banner. At the On the Record page at WIPR.org, we have links to some of his recent reporting. I'm Sheila Cass. Glad you're with us on the record. Come back tomorrow.